Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Pseudo Intellectual Live. Appreciate you being here. Today, we have a very special guest, someone who I've been following for a while, but this is actually my first time getting to speak to him, so I couldn't be more excited. We have Dave Smith. He is a husband, father, comedian, libertarian, and host of the Part of the Problem podcast. And by the way, if you're not following this guy on X, I highly recommend that you do. Dave, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Lauren. Very good to be with you. Now, there's a bunch that I want to talk to you about. Uh, you know, you're a libertarian, comedian, podcast host. You have so much going on. But one of the things that I find your takes really the most interesting on, and they really set you apart from other accounts, is your discussion of foreign policy on X. And now there's a lot going on in that sphere. So I thought we could kind of kick off the conversation with that. Uh, let's talk about it. The Middle East situation, you're someone who's been very vocal about what's going on, especially with regards to, obviously, Israel and the situation in Gaza. Can you give us a little bit of a, I guess, kind of a rundown of, of how you see that situation? And obviously, very broad question, but I guess in regard to the <clears throat> what's going on right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that is a broad question. It's just, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a catastrophe, obviously, and it's just horrific. Um, and... Look, I mean, if we if Americans haven't learned anything from the last 20 plus years of terror wars and Middle East interventions, I, I don't know what how could you not say they've just been a disaster all around. And, you know, I uh, like I got a uh, I got blocked recently by uh, uh, John Podhoretz, uh, who for people don't know, his father was a uh, Norman Podhoretz and he works over at Commentary Magazine. They're like big neocons. His father was one of the most influential members in the neoconservative movement and he was kind of going back and forth with me he you know he did kind of the thing that warhawks tend to do he called uh thomas massey i believe his exact words were um anti-semitic filth he called him anti-semitic filth because thomas Ma massey said we're broke we can't afford to fund any more foreign wars and i just asked him point blank i said hey what was the last war that you supported that worked out well <laughs> and it's like, man, they cannot answer that question. And uh, a good friend of mine, a totally brilliant uh, guy, Scott Horton, who's, I, I think, probably the best anti-war voice in the country, he debated uh, Bill Crystal, also like a second-generation neocon. His father, Irving Crystal, was debatably the most influential neoconservative thinker. And there was one point where uh, I encourage people to go watch the debate where um, – an audience that during the audience question segment, someone asked Bill Crystal, what was the last intervention that worked out well? And he said, I believe his answer was the Balkans. And so even Bill Crystal can't dare claim that Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or Libya or Somalia or Yemen can't claim any of these were anything other than a total disaster. And yet here we are racing to get involved in another Middle Eastern war. I mean, it's just, it's absolute madness. Now, for, for people who aren't familiar uh, with my own takes on the issue, I kind of am the black sheep of the conservative movement in a lot of ways because I'm someone who is more libertarian. And I guess people say anti-interventionist. I'm not, I'm not an isolationist isolationists just don't want to be funding bombing other people. Um, I've had people say, okay, well, regardless of what previously has happened in the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, let's talk about Israel specifically. And shouldn't we be standing with our allies and helping them fight 
Hamas, because oftentimes I feel like if you're trying to paint yourself as anti-war in this movement, the counter that uh, I guess the neoconservatives or even the neoliberals will give to you is, well, that does that mean we just do nothing? What about Hamas? What about our allies? Don't, don't we have a, a duty to help them? Okay. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, if Israel is an ally, they've, they've been some ally. I mean, uh, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, first of all, if you, if you want to go back and like look at the history of this, you can read a, a document called the clean break or a clean break. And this was written by Richard Pearl and David Wormser. And this was in 1996. And they laid out the plan to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And this was written to Benjamin Netanyahu, not to Bill Clinton, or Bob Dole, who was running for president that year. This was to Benjamin Netanyahu. And this was the the war in Iraq was, let's just say, largely influenced by Israeli interests. And Benjamin Netanyahu has been lying through his teeth to the world and to the American people, claiming since the 1990s that Iran is five years away from getting a nuke. He said, if you remember, they famously went to the UN with that dumb, like a uh, Daffy Duck bomb that he was drawing up how close <laughs> they are to getting a nuke and then guess what it's 2024 and they still don't have the, the the weapon so this is somebody who the longest serving prime minister in israeli history has been trying to lie our country into another catastrophic war so i don't consider them to be a very good ally and you know as far as hamas goes and and this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but people can look it up and they can listen to Benjamin Netanyahu in his own words say this, that his plan for years was to prop up and support Hamas. And he did it explicitly so that he would never have to, you know, engage in the peace process with the Palestinians. This was his monster that he, I wouldn't say created, but certainly, you know, encouraged and allowed to grow. And it blew up in, in his face and in his people's face. And the, I'm sorry, but like, no, I don't think that should be America's responsibility. The, the fact is that there's been a lot of violence on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm not like claiming that no Arabs have done nothing wrong or anything like that. But Israel has been occupying and dominating the Palestinian people since 1967. Palestinians have lived under totalitarianism imposed on them by Israel. And look, this is the type of thing that will breed terrorism. And that's sad because innocent people end up getting killed and they don't deserve that. But at the same time, no, it's if, if America has any role, and I'm a complete non-interventionist, not an isolationist, I believe in free trade, I believe in friendly relations, right. all countries. Um, but if America is to have any role in this, it should be in negotiating a peace process, not in funding a mass murder campaign. Right. And so what what I find hard to discuss about the situation is that you have a lot of different factions who are opposed to the current is Israeli military operation. And I find when you're trying to argue against American intervention or what Israel is doing right now, there's a tendency to paint uh, people like yourself or like me 
who simply are, are not supporting either side, but especially don't want the U.S. intervening, they will try to paint that as the same thing as the legitimate Hamas sympathizers who exist on the left. And they are out there. You know, for, I, I have seen people say, no, Hamas, the any any action they might take, even against civilians, is legitimate because it's an occupying force. Like, I'm not going to pretend that those people aren't out there because they absolutely are. But the obfuscation of like, oh, well, if you don't, you know, if, if you don't want us to arm Israel, if you're not comfortable going to war with Israel, you must support Hamas. That's what I found really frustrating, uh, you know, because you've, you've also mentioned that Thomas Mas Massey, who I love, by the way, I think he's a gem. People of Kentucky are lucky to have him. He's been smeared as an anti-Semite. I'm sure you have as well. I, I mean, basically, there is the idea that even people like or institutions like PragerU have put forward that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. How do you factor that into everything? Because it's been it's been frustrating for me personally as someone who has really eschewed uh, political correctness or identity politics. I've been very, you know, I can criticize a person or an action without it meaning I'm bigoted. It's been frustrating to me to now have to explain that to some people on the right who previously were supporting me in that, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, there's people who have made their entire careers off of, you know, opposing identity politics and, you know, supporting free speech or all, any of these things. And it's it's amazing how they just become indistinguishable from woke leftists as soon as Israel is the topic. I mean, I'm I'm Jewish, by the way, so I don't know if that that's you know, no defense, though. As no, it's been, not. No, yeah, no, 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 I'm the self I mean, Norman Finkelstein, that certainly hasn't saved him from the anti-Semitism smear. Yeah, we're me and uh, him are the we're the Jewish face of anti-Semitism or whatever, yeah. you know, it's uh, so it's all the same. It's just so stupid. It's like hard to even respond to. Um, I I do. I agree with you. There are, you know, if you have a case to be made, you do not want like a college campus leftist making it for you because they're going right. to make it in the absolute worst way. And then there have been really stupid things like, I mean, not just like the the celebrating and putting the hang gliders on their posters and, um, you know, blocking traffic like you guys. I mean, you you guys might as well work for Mossad. Like, I mean, I don't think you're doing anything other than pushing people to support Israel. Um, but again, and this is like a major problem that the right wing uh, in America has today is that so the left wing has gone obviously just totally insane. And, you know, they're having the, I saw yesterday, um, in the morning before Tucker's interview, the big controversy of the day was like letting dudes box in the Olympics with women. And you're, it's hard to not look at things like this and just be like, how are we even having this conversation? Like, how is this yeah. not something we all just agree on? But the problem when the left goes so crazy is then right wingers just spend all their time talking about how crazy the left is. And like if you're if your total contribution to American political discourse is like, I don't think dudes should fight chicks like, OK, but now you've just been sucked into this dumb conversation. And that's all. I'm not saying you shouldn't make that point. I'm just saying that can't be all you have to say. And like the, the question with Israel, it's like, OK, so one side is saying you hate Jewish people if you oppose what the government of Israel is doing. And then the other side is saying Hamas are heroes and like, oh, OK, all of that's stupid. But let's just like push out all the stupidity for a second and just talk about what's actually going on. Right. And what's actually going on is that the same mentality that Osama bin Laden had when he basically, if you read his letter to America, he basically said that, well, look, you guys have elections and you vote for your government and therefore you're responsible for the crimes of your government and therefore you're fair game for me to come kill you. But that is evil. 
And that the idea that that people like innocent women and children are fair game because of something the political class decided to do is insane. But that's the same exact logic that Benjamin Netanyahu is using against the people in Gaza. Right. That, well, okay, you're fair game. And it's something that I have seen a shocking amount of people on the right support as well. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I've, especially at the beginning, sharing some of the horrific images coming out of Gaza, I've had people say, well, you know, they're all terrorists, they support terrorists. Never mind the fact that a, a huge number of the people who are in Gaza are are children and therefore definitely not responsible to, you know, what the political or militant class is doing. But I mean, this is also the same mentality that leads Hamas to attack civilians sometimes. You know, sure. a, a large number of Israelis do support uh, the current military action. They support the subjugation of the people in Gaza. Does that make them fair game for the military targets? Hamas says yes. You know, and I think we see dissecting this, how evil like you said, that mentality is, but it's it's frustrating because a lot of people don't want to apply, I guess, consistent standards to their own side and understand how the justification for these horrific acts happen. And if you try to bring it up, then of course you're you're painted as complicit. You you mentioned that this is creating terrorism. This is this is something that the CIA uh, calls blowback. It's it's a commonly accepted. Uh, phenomenon. Uh, terrorists aren't born. They are made. And, you know, when you try to, to ask people, what do you think is going to happen, the situation on, in Gaza, if entire families are killed, if, if children are being left orphaned, do you think that gets us closer to reconciliation or a peace deal? You aren't going to get called a terrorist sympathizer for that, unfortunately. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when it's like, it's like, why the double standard when one mm -hmm. standard will do just fine? And that's all we really need here to understand what's going on. I mean, I wonder how many of those like uh, uh, conservative hawks, particularly like the older ones, like uh, um, Dennis Prager or, right. or even like Ben Shapiro or something like that, you know, they can say, oh, well, they support they support Hamas or they voted for Hamas, you know, whatever. I mean, I think 70 percent of the population didn't vote in the 2005 election, but whatever. Let's just even say they voted for them. It's like, OK, Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro, where were you on the war in Iraq? Mm -hmm. Did you support that? Did you support George W. Bush? Oh, yeah, that's right. You sure did. So, okay, what are you fair game now? What? Why is it that you can't? And this isn't like me picking one side or the other. I'm just saying if you're saying this logic applies over here, then why wouldn't it also apply to you? Why is it that if it's done by the United States military or the IDF, somehow that doesn't count as terrorism? Somehow this is supposed to be in a in a different moral category but like i mean you got kids i have kids if somebody killed one of our kids i don't think we would sit there and go like no it's okay it was a state actor you know right. it was a, a, an official state military therefore i'm not as angry about it as i would be if it was whatever hamas is like the toughest gang in an israeli prison then somehow it's okay so all i'm saying is like apply these standards across the board and if you do that i think what you just inevitably come to the conclusion that none of this is justified that i mean either you come to the conclusion that all of it's justified or that none of it's justified if you're being consistent and out of those two options i think the only sane response is that yeah just like killing innocent people is not acceptable and it's kind of wild that we're as advanced as we are uh, as a species and that that point still needs to be made well i guess the and this is me attempting to play devil's advocate sure. but i guess the idea i've heard so much is then well tell hamas to stop if hamas just stopped then there would be peace tomorrow and actually we have a super chat that i think 
expresses a similar sentiment, I'll fight you naked for $10, Israel is dominating the Muslims there because every time they don't, the Muslims bomb civilians. Islam is antithetical to civilization. Israel is doing what's necessary, but we shouldn't pay for it. Okay, so we can agree on that. We shouldn't pay for it. But then I guess the, the question is, if if what's happening is so wrong, how do we how do we stop it? And I've heard people say that. Well, what is... It? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to highlight that comment. Uh, that seems narcissistic. Um, what what is the way forward then for Israel? Well, look, I mean, the, the comment that anytime Israel isn't dominating the the Arabs, that then they just bomb them is it, it's a very convenient, inaccurate way to look at the history of the conflict. And actually, the truth is that um, it's not until Israel was dominating uh, that they started dealing with the, the terrorism problem. And that's just the reality of the situation. And if you want to go through the whole history of Israel, I mean, I'm I'm happy to do it. It's a long history. But the reality is that a bunch of European uh, settlers decided that they wanted to create their own country in an area that was already inhabited by a local population. And they did this gradually for decades. And then in 1947, after a European body decided to recommend to split up the land, they violently expelled people by the hundreds of thousands. And they've been dominating them pretty much ever since. Um, you could say that they were under Egyptian and Jordanian control up until 1967, but at least since then. And so, look, I'm not saying there's been no violence from Arabs toward Israelis, but that is how it started. And I just think that's a total, it's a total cop out. Um, and I know that it's, a uh, it, it became like kind of, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess since the George W. Bush years, it's, there's been a tremendous uh, effort amongst right-wingers to demonize and dehumanize uh, Muslims. And you can sit here and think that it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't know, it's edgy or it's politically incorrect to go like, yeah, screw them. Look, to be clear, I'm a libertarian, which means by definition, I'm a Western chauvinist. I think the West is best. And of course, it's the only place where there's ever been a conception of individual liberty. But if we're just being honest and looking at the situation here, this argument that, oh, Islam is so inherent, inherently anti-civilization that the Israelis just have to dominate these people or they'd be, whatever, suicide bombing themselves all the time. It's like, okay, well, Israel's, Israel's big enemy from the creation of Israel in 1948 up until the 70s, their big enemy was Egypt. They went to war three different times with Egypt. Um, and then they made a deal in the 70s and they uh, what they called land for peace. And they've had peace with Egypt ever since. Mm -hmm. They had peace with Iraq. They have peace with Saudi Arabia. They have peace with the UAE. They have peace with all types of countries. And if you're going to tell me that Egypt and Saudi Arabia don't have a radical Islam problem, I'd, I'd say look closer at those countries. The, the groups that they do not have peace with are the Palestinians, are Hezbollah in Lebanon. The, oh, just happens to be the places that they've occupied. Oh, Syria, Golan Heights. Okay, just happens to be those are the those are the Muslims that they have a problem with. And it's pretty clear that from the example of, of just Egypt that, yeah, no, you could you could just make peace, but it would actually require the, uh, a political will to do so. Right. And so, you know, when you're talking about the founding of Israel, uh, you mentioned the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of people. It's what the Arabs call the Nakba. Um, I, I, I studied Middle East studies when I was in university. And it's funny, I used to be a neocon <laughs> before that. 
Um, you know, a lot of people have the radical leftist phases in college. I had my neocon phase equally embarrassing. And, you know, I, I bring that up not to necessarily say like, oh, this happened back then. Therefore, everyone in Israel is guilty. I, no. I, I've had people bring up the founding of America through settler colonialism as, as a reason why America basically has original sin. I remember learning that and thinking, well, that's kind of uncool. But hey, you know, that that's true for a lot of Western countries. It doesn't necessarily mean that what's happening in Israel right now should be reflective of what happened back then. What I think a lot of people don't understand and you alluded to is that there has been consistent subjugation. Um, you know, I've had people try to bring it, bring it up the, uh, you know, native Americans in America as, as somewhat of a, well, look, if, if you're not okay with what we're doing in, in Israel, then surely you must think, oh, we should just give land back to the native Americans. Native Americans have equal citizenship in the United right. States. That's not what's happening in Palestine. So I feel that's, it's a little bit disingenuous when people try to excuse one. They're like, oh, this is the same. It's actually not the same. And I didn't understand that for far too long. I'm basically ashamed to say, because we always hear, no, there are Arab Israelis who have equal rights. They're even in, you know, they're, they're in the is Israeli parliament in, in Israeli government. How could you say that it's a, I guess, an apartheid state? What's your response to that? Well, yeah. Okay. So a couple of things. So I think you're absolutely right that look, even when, you, as you said it, you're like, oh, you learned the history of what uh, we did to the Native Americans when we come over here. And you're like, oh, that's not cool, you know? And yeah. that doesn't mean we're going to give all the land back to the Native Americans because, look, this is many generations ago. And the, it would be an equal moral crime at this point to, like, kick all of us out of our land. But that right there is the answer. You at least recognize, yeah, that was wrong. This did happen to you. And whatever Native Americans are still around ought to have their full rights protected, you know, like, and that's, that's the most basic thing. And so I'm not saying that, and no one's, I mean, okay, look, again, I shouldn't say no one, because yeah, there are some river to the sea, you know, people and, but every single time that there's been negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis in the Oslo Accords or any in, uh, of the follow-up, you know, peace process talks, no one was ever talking about kicking all of the Israelis out of Israel. That's never been what the debate is about. They're talking about 1967 borders. They're mm -hmm. saying, do the people in Gaza and the West Bank have a right to, um, to autonomy and independence? That's the, the question here. Do they, do they deserve their natural rights? And so that's all the argument is really about. And, and none of that other stuff has ever even been, you know, yes, it, the, I'm sure there's some fantasies that some Palestinians have of taking back the whole thing. I'm sure there's some fantasies Native Americans have or some fantasies Mexicans have about taking back California. But here in the real world, none of that is going to happen. Um, and so, you know, to, to your, your point about like kind of, understanding the history of of all of this it's like look there are there are arab citizens of israel there's something around 20 percent of of the population and no they don't have the full rights that uh jewish citizens have but they you know they do have some and there are some members uh, uh i believe on their supreme court and there's some members in the knesset and like okay and you know, in the Middle East, if you're going to be an Arab, being a citizen of Israel is probably the best place you could be on average. Um, but what do we always talk about, right? Like we always talk about a two-state solution somewhere in the future. And some people are for that and some people are against that. But the admission in that is that we don't have two states right now. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about th there's just kind of this occupied territory, well, maybe you could get away with that for three years after a war or even 10 years after a war, 
But we're talking about since 1967, these areas have been occupied and dominated by Israel. So at a certain point, you just have to look at it like this is all Israel. This is a one-state solution right now. And if that's the case, which I think is the reality, and I debated Will Chamberlain on, on this topic, and he even conceded to me that, like, yeah, right now it's all Israel. So if that's the case, then Israel isn't a democracy. And, and I'm not saying this is someone who's a fan of democracy, but I'm just saying that's not what they are. And what they are is an apartheid state where you have five plus million people who live in your government with no rights. And I'm forget voting rights, like even no mm. rights. No, I mean, in, in the West Bank today, they are totally occupied by the IDF. In Gaza today, they're occupied and being, you know, uh, slaughtered. But for since 1967, the IDF soldiers will run up, point a gun in your face, tell your grandmother to get on the ground. They arrest people. They have no due process whatsoever. I'm talking about even in the peace times, not when they're on bombing campaigns. I'm just saying just everyday life is that you have absolutely no rights. You, you, they, you have no freedom to travel. You have no freedom to move within your own territory. You have no uh, due process guaranteed to you. You can be locked up and they can just say, you know, uh, your kid threw a rock at me. Did he? Or did he not? We, who knows? But they can just say that and lock up a child. And right. th that's just unacceptable. And so I've I've shared videos like this and I've had people say, well, what do you expect? Israel is under attack. And, you know, it Hamas, basically. But we see, unfortunately, the same conditions in the West Bank, which is not under Hamas. And, you know, sadly, even though Hamas was only founded, I think, started in the 80s, these are conditions that Palestinians have been living under since before then. And, you know, obviously this is an issue where a lot of my audience disagrees with me, but I personally, as someone who basically went on a tirade about how inhumane uh, lockdown protocols were, I can't look at what Israel is doing, not just because of, you know, emergency like COVID, but basically, I mean, with no end in sight to millions of people and say, yes, this is a moral just government, right? I mean, I had conservatives applauding me when I was calling out Justin Trudeau and the, the way he treated Canadians under COVID. I can't, for my own principles, turn around and say, yes, Israel, big Western civilization, uh, it's it's all all good, all rights, all democracy. I just, I, I, I can't do it. And I'm kind of, it confuses me how so many people, especially on the right, have they see no, I guess, no cognitive dissonance there that they can simultaneously condemn someone like Trudeau, but then lift up someone like Benjamin Netanyahu. But um, no, that's, a, have that's a great point. And, and let me just say that the, the one other element to it is that it's it's foreign military occupation, right. you know, which is is just whatever. That's just the way human beings kind of tribal monkey brains work. But there's, I mean, think about like the fact that how many right-wingers in this country believe that the election for, was stolen in 2020? And like, okay, and you kind of take that and you're pissed off about that. And you're like, I think they cheated, you know, but just imagine that like Donald Trump won the, the election. And then let's say they were just much more powerful than us. Russia just invaded and overthrew Donald Trump and just propped. And like, there was no like question about it. They weren't denying that they did it. They were just like, yeah, no, we took you. And now you live under Russian totalitarianism. Like, what do you think the right wing militias in this country would be doing? They wouldn't right. just be bitching and moaning the way they are about Biden. They'd be doing some things that from the Russian perspective might be labeled terrorism. 
Right. So we have some people in the chat. Uh, Lauren is an idiot on the issue and is entitled, has no idea. These two are just as naive and ignorant of the world as leftists are. Guys, you are free to disagree with us. I welcome that. I just think it's more productive if you could tell us what specifically we are wrong about. So it, it's, a, it's a lot more informative than just saying you're ignorant, right? I mean, that I about what is what I'll ask. But that, that goes back to the idea that these people you know, who are, are very gung-ho about the current military operation, There, there's no attempt of, I don't even want to say empathy because it makes it sound wishy-washy, but trying to understand the grievances that people have as to, and, and, and basically how that's continuing the current conflict. I mean, there, there are tons of Americans who are, are very, very gung ho, like, oh, we, you know, uh, for Cuba, for example, we, we can't let them, uh, you know, Russia interfere. It's still the Cold War, apparently. That's just a different country having their own their own political alliances. Never mind, as you mentioned, if that were happening in the United States, how Americans would feel about that. And I've I listened to the uh, Ben Shapiro debate with Destiny, and it was interesting. They touched upon Israel. There's not a lot of disagreement between the two, frankly, when it comes to that issue. But it made me realize that Ben Shapiro, for all of his interests in this issue, he does not understand Arab culture, perspective, history, language or any of it. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh, you know, he basically said that all Muslims understand is violence. And so we need to have a strong force. It's like you you don't understand Muslim culture if you don't understand honor culture and shame culture. And basically what you've done every time, uh, you know, the Israeli government does basically, you know, as Norman Ficklestein says, mowing the lawn, uh, one of those military actions. You don't understand the collective shame that brings to the Muslim Ummah. So you saying, oh, well, no, that's how we show them they're strong. You could not be more wrong and you could not be more ignorant about how your actions are being interpreted. Yeah. And I just don't think that like, look, I'm not, I'm not a leftist. I'm not like some cultural relativist and I'm not sitting no, here telling you. No, you're a leftist. I'm sorry. Dave. Well, now there you go. Uh, but I'm not sitting here and telling you like all cultures are the same and all civilizations are equal or anything like that. But I'm just saying, let's be fair about this and look at what um, look at what the Irish were doing when they were being dominated by the British and look at what you know, you talk about uh, national humiliation. I mean, look at what happened after World War Two when we insisted on yeah. internationally humiliating the Germans under the Treaty of Versailles, like ugly reactions rise up. And I actually think that in many ways, this is more what is common amongst most cultures. The The idea that the Palestinians are supposed to just accept this, all you got to do is be a human being for a second. What would you do if someone was pointing a gun in your grandmother's face and telling her to get on the floor or screaming curfew and making your mom and your little sister run back into their home because they fucking feel like it? Like, I'm sorry, you would not be any more civilized than they are being. And I think if you ask yourself that question honestly, listener, who's calling me a leftist, I think, I think you know I'm right. And look, in terms of saying, like, if you want to say I'm ignorant of the history of this, like, okay, I'll go chapter and verse with you. Like, you give me the year, and I'll tell you what was going on. I grew up with the Israeli propaganda. I know it very well. And I've, I've heard Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager and all of them give it. And it's always just giant lies by omission. You know? And if you think the story is that, Israel declared their independence in 1948, and then all these Arab countries attacked because they're just so evil and bloodthirsty and hate the Jews. That's just not it. It's not what was going on then, and it's not what's been going on the whole time. 
I'm not defending them or saying they were right at every turn. In fact, as I said before, I'm a Western chauvinist. I think Israel is a cool country. I think they're better than any other country in the Middle East. I also think the United States of America is better than Saddam Hussein's Iraq. That doesn't mean we were justified to invade them, though. And that doesn't mean that that war was not all uh, D.C.'s fault. So that's kind of how I see this thing here. All right. Well, we have uh, some some super chats to get to some people who want to weigh in on the conversation. First, I do want to say a big thank you, though, to today's sponsor, Books, because get guess what, guys? Valentine's Day. It is coming up February 14th, and I'm sure you don't want to disappoint those special people in your life. It doesn't even need to be a girlfriend or wife. I mean, it's just it's nice to know someone out there is thinking about you. So that's where Books come in, which is, by the way, short for bouquets. I've got you covered with 25% off your entire purchase over at the Books company. Books is my go-to flower source, and here's why. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, even ones on the side of a volcano, which pretty cool. They stay fresh way, way longer. And I actually have a personal experience with this. My husband left a box of books unopened for like four days because he didn't know it was the flowers. The flowers were still okay, miraculously. Uh, books is easy. You can buy your roses in one click or choose from one of their unique modern designs you can't find anywhere else, like the 100 red roses you've heard about. Again, Valentine's Day, February 14th. You can place your order early and pick your delivery date. Don't believe it when she says, oh, you don't have to get anything. Get her flowers, show her that you care, that you're thinking of her. So go to books.com and use the promo code Lauren for 25% off. Again, that is B-O-U-Q-S.com with the promo code Lauren for 20% off. A big thank you to Books for sponsoring this video. All right, so let's That's, let's that's real good advice, by the way. That's one thing I've learned in marriage. When your wife says, don't get me anything for whatever it is, that, that doesn't mean what you think it means right it's, it's basically like her saying that she's fine don't don't believe it that's yeah, <laughs> never true so here we have the biblical anarchy podcast says if the palestinian muslims are so violent why did thousands of christians live in gaza peacefully i say i say did past tense because the idf has killed many of them at this point and so there is that narrative uh, throughout, especially conservative circles, that basically when we're when it comes to Palestinians, we are dealing with terrorists who are murderous. They would kill you on sight. I've had people say, oh, if you love if you love Palestinians so much, why don't you go to Gaza? They'll kill you. And it's like, first off, I don't think anyone wants to go to Gaza at this point, which is basically why people are talking about it. Uh, but also. I, I, you know, I, I've spoken to Daniel Cohen before. He he describes his time in in Gaza. H have you been there personally? Do you have an experience no. with that? What would you say then to the idea that perhaps we are romanticizing uh, these people with our Western sensibilities, who, given the chance, would kill us outright? Well, I mean, I, you know, there's not no truth to that, but I don't think I'm romanticizing them at all. Like there are lots of fundamental problems in the Islamic world. And that's just undeniable. And, you know, there's all over the place, not just in Palestine, but, you know, if you look at like, um, you know, like child uh, genital mutilation amongst the Kurds, if you look at, um, you know, um, Saudi Arabia, I mean, it's my God, their culture police and what they do to people for accused of stealing and, you know, all just horrible, uh, barbaric stuff, of course. We prop up the Saudis and we, you know, we've done quite a bit. Uh, U.S. foreign policy has done quite a bit to prop up the most radical elements of the region. Um, again, I'm not I'm not claiming that they are advanced Western societies. They're not. And they are more primitive and barbaric than advanced Western societies. I'm just saying that doesn't give you the right to go slaughter all of them. 
and what a it's novel not concept. It, yeah it's like it's not fair it's kind of like i don't know it's kind of like if you were in the middle of slavery you were like look at these slaves they're illiterate they can't even read and it's like yeah, well yeah but like you don't let them read yeah and so and i'm not saying that like if you freed them then necessarily we would all have an equal outcome or anything like that. I'm not taking some goofy leftist position here. I'm just saying that dominating these people forever, number one, is morally wrong. And number two, that comes with a cost. And let's not pretend it doesn't. You know, this was like the original George W. Bush lie, that they hate us for our freedom. And if, if, if you accept that, then you go, well, yeah, I mean, what else can we do? We got to go kill them all. I mean, they're going to try to kill us just because we're free and we let our women read or whatever. So, yeah, except that wasn't the truth at all. And it was such a predictable consequence of our foreign policy. And they knew that. All these guys knew that. It was Colin Powell, the wisest member of the George W. Bush administration, who still, you know, should burn in hell for selling that war that he knew was sold on lies. But he was the one who right after 9-11 told George W. Bush, you have to do a two-state solution now. You have to do it right now. And George W. Bush ultimately didn't do it because of the political ramifications. By the way, uh, John Mearsheimer has written a bunch about that. It's a really fascinating little chapter in history. But uh, but why did Colin Powell say that? Because he knew this is the source of so much of why we deal with the terrorism problem. And as long as there's not a two-state solution and we're endlessly backing Israel, we're going to have to deal with this problem. And as long as Israel wants to dominate these people, they're going to have to deal with this problem. Right. Um so this is super chat that I thought was well relevant from Shield Wife. In the last decades, the USA has caused the death of millions of Middle Easterners and turned a million more into refugees. No one can talk about radical Islam without putting it into context. This is a, so something else that you know I've brought up before and I've kind of gotten attacked for it is is the idea that Islam wasn't always its current iteration, right? Because right now you obviously have the violent extremists, the Wahhabists. But I mean, if you look at the Islamic world in the 60s and 70s, it was a very different place. And I think there are a lot of people out there, and I'm beginning to realize how much of this is due to, I think, I'll just say it, propaganda on behalf of the military industrial complex, who see Islam as inherently what is being practiced somewhere like Saudi Arabia. That is it at its core. Um, and to do that, uh, oftentimes people will bring up, look at this verse in the Quran or the Hadith to justify how it's just inherently bad and, you know, bring that into people like ISIS. You, I, and I'm, I'm not Muslim, so I just want to be clear of that. I don't, th you know, I, I, I'm not here to carry water for Islam, but I think the problem with painting the religion as just, oh, they're inherently bad, evil terrorists, we can't really do anything, we can't negotiate with them, is that it's, it's essentially an attempt to give the West or Israel, you name it, carte blanche in these military operations, in these attacks. We cannot, they cannot possibly be reasoned with, they hate you for your freedom, therefore we must do this. And that's simply not true. We've seen time and time again, you actually can negotiate with Hamas. And, and that's not even me trying to be like, Hamas are the good guys, but the idea that the, they are irrational actors inherently, I think think that that is a, an attempt to frankly lie to the American population to make it seem like there is no other way forward other than frankly indiscriminate bombing. Yeah. And, and well, look, I would say, so, uh, after world war one, um, they, the, they issued this, uh, a commission called the King crane commission. And they basically, um, they, they went to, uh, it was an American commission. They were supposed to have the British and the French on board, but then I think they bailed on it. But they basically went into the Middle East 
and just interviewed like every person they could. They were trying to figure out like, what do we do with these territories that used to be ruled by the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Empire is now collapsed. And there's a lot of interesting information that came out of the King Crane Commission. But one of the, the nuggets that I think is is really worth knowing is that they, uh, they asked uh, Syrians, thousands of them, who they wanted to rule Syria under a League of Nations mandate. Um, and overwhelmingly, Syria voted for the United States of America because they they looked at us rather fondly. And you got to think this is like this is just at the end of World War One, and America was still viewed as the not colonizer. You know, they're oh they're the city on the hill who believes in freedom. They loved America. They hated the British and the French, and I wonder why because they had been dominating them for so long. And I just think there's a there's a lesson there. That it's like, oh, yeah, now they hate Americans. And why is that? Well, because of, you know, like what your last uh, um, super chat just said. Mm -hmm. I, we've we've started seven wars over there in the last 20 years. And these wars have led to the deaths of millions of people. And there's, you know, you do this, it inspires hatred. And again, that's not, it's not saying like that the Muslim world is perfect or without lots and lots of problems. But the worst problem in the Muslim world has been U.S.-backed wars over the last 20 years. And just like, you know, to the question of like, would you go to Gaza today? It's like, I don't know. Like, I'm Jewish. I'm not saying there's nobody in Gaza who would just hate me because I'm Jewish and want to kill me. But if I were going to Gaza right now, the biggest fear would be what the IDF is going to do to me. <laughs> right. That's just a fact. Right. Um, so we do have, I'll fight you naked again. Jews predate all other populations. Okay. Uh, and why aren't the Native Americans bombing U.S. cities? Why aren't reservations open air prisons? Well, I think that's, I mean, like we talked about, that's a very different situation. Native Americans are full American citizens. They're able to freely leave reservations. They're not trapped there. They don't have walls sur surrounding them pushing them in, right? They don't have, they don't have to deal with smart weapons mounted on walls that shoot them, that well, that's why they're yeah. not bombing anybody. Yeah, I mean, well, number one, Jews do not predate all other populations. That's just not true. And um, there were populations before the Jewish religion existed. And um, yeah, the the reason why Native American uh, reservations aren't open air prisons is because they can leave and come back. That's yeah. that's what that's kind of the difference, right? Like, why is my house not a prison? Like, I because I can go can and leave. come as I want to, right? Yeah. So. Also says this is why the Japanese unalived everyone, including kids. No one left to take revenge. Not a suggestion. For the record, Dave's show is great. It really is. Appreciate uh, you know, the the debate here. It's a good time. Uh, Colby Callahan says, what are your practical suggestions for what Israel uh, should do if Gaza is given autonomy and they use it to launch missiles? What would the next step be? So this is something that I, I think is a, is a great question, right? It's easy to say, don't do this. Okay, then what is the solution? I, I've i heard, oh, if, if Hamas were to stop tomorrow, there would be peace. That I think ignores the fact that the conditions that Gazans are living under are not actually peace. You could say it returns to the status quo, but that's not peace. And as someone who is kind of uh, in favor of human rights, I think collective punishment as is being inflicted upon the population of Gaza is 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 not peace. And I think to say that it is, is, is overlooking all of the suffering that's been happening. We are dealing with a population that actually is being kept just above starvation on purpose. But Dave, do you think that a two-state solution is actually feasible? Because, I mean, on their part, Hamas and the Palestinians, they 
basically will not accept Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, that's that's a big sticking point, even regardless of the the land disputes. That is something that they seem unwilling to do. Do you think that is something that Israel should compromise on? Or do you think that it's it's an inherent part of their existence? Okay, well, let me just uh, uh, let me just answer the question that I, I want to uh, sure. talk about that too. So um, in terms of like, what a practical solution or like what Israel could do as a response. Let's say like you can't change anything else in history up to October 7th, but then we get to change. Like what does Israel do as a response to it? Well, like the first thing would be um, you'd want to have an investigation. It is still so murky what happened on October 7th. And I'm not like, don't take that as that I'm like suggesting any type of wild conspiracy. It's just that it's not like, it's not just the gray zone, but like Haaretz, the biggest liberal newspaper in Israel, they've all talked about all of these reports about like the IDF and what their response was and that a lot of people were killed by Israel on October 7th. Clearly, a lot of people were killed by Hamas too. I'm not like claiming any of that didn't happen. But you'd want to have a real investigation into how this possibly happened that the most secure fortress on planet Earth was somehow fell victim to this attack from the most surveilled area on planet Earth in Gaza. I think you'd want to have a real reckoning for Netanyahu for propping up Gaza for all of these years and then watching it blow up in uh, in Israelis' faces. Um, I think you'd want to fortify your borders and make sure that nothing like this can ever happen again. And then, look, it wasn't until until Benjamin Netanyahu, and I think a lot of people don't know this, Israel never fought terrorism in this manner. It's only been since Netanyahu's been in there that this is the, the, the way that they fight this. They always fought it with uh, targeted assassination campaigns, special operations, essentially. Never this kind of indiscriminate bombing or, you know, they say it's not indiscriminate, but I mean, take a look at what's going on in Gaza right now. It's pretty damn close to it. Um, and, you know, like, no, th this is totally unacceptable. And yes, obviously, there was going to be some type of violence uh, that Israel was going to respond with after uh, October 7th. But there was, there was absolutely no need for it to be this. And this is the last thing you would want to do if your priority was to retrieve hostages. Like, obviously. I mean, we really have no way of knowing how many of these hostages Israel has killed since October 7th. And it's pretty clear from their actions that that is not the priority. The priority is to punish Gazans. Um, now, to your... Uh, question. I'm sorry. You, so th yeah, this, so look, this thing about recognizing Israel as a Jewish state. And again, I know this cause I'm Jewish and I grew up just immersed in the pro-Israeli propaganda. This is a total goalpost shift that has happened again, since Netanyahu's been in control. The talking point, the line was always, do you recognize Israel's right to exist? And then once all of the Arab states did that, including Palestinian leadership from Yasser Arafat on, and, and even Hamas has recognized Israel's right to exist under 1967 borders. Then they changed it. They moved the goalpost and said, but do you recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state? And they put that in there specifically because they know it's a poison pill. And the reason why it's a poison pill is because in the negotiations, there's always been what the Palestinians want, and this is largely symbolic if you actually look into what Arafat was asking for. It wasn't like millions of people. It was like tens of thousands of people. But they want some type of right of return. 
some type of acknowledgement that like, hey, some Palestinians can come back and live in some of these towns that used to be theirs. It's that. And then it's also the fact that 20% of the Israeli population is Arab. So just like imagine, imagine trying to, you know, convince black people in America that America has the right to exist as a white Christian country. It's going to be pretty tough to get them on board with that. And it, it, it's totally just even, a poison pill. Or even pill. just as a Christian country. Yeah, and frankly, right. that's that's another thing that I find very strange is like, you know, I've been smeared as a Christian nationalist by people on the right for being too, you know, too oh, Christian. But I, I, I find it strange when and when not to accept, I guess, basically a religiously identified state. And I, I'm going to go as far as to say, I don't think any state or government has the right to exist. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that necessarily means that I am in favor of any type of genocide of the Jewish people, which I know is, is a criticism that I have gotten when I say something like that, that I don't think states have a right to exist. Uh, and certainly not as a specific uh religious affiliation. Yeah, um, I mean, people have rights. States right. don't really have rights. So yeah, the people there have a right to exist. But then the, of course, this is like, the, it's always framed as like, does Israel have a right to exist? And it's never framed as like, does Palestine have a right to exist? Like, mm -hmm. do, do those people have their rights? And that's really the question. The, the bottom line is that it, what Israel suffered on October 7th was terrible. It, it was the worst terrorist attack in their history. It was far from the only one. They've had to deal with like a terrorism problem for many decades. But the Israeli people do not live under totalitarianism. And the Palestinian people do. And that's the big asymmetry here. Right. Um, we just have some super chats, but now I, I want to get your take on the whole Putin interview that's basically blowing up the internet. Uh, sure. Andrew, just with a, a super chat, thank you so much. One's compliment says... More debates with the reactionaries, Dave. London sure. Love, uh, Sahih Al-Bukhari, 2926 Thoughts, Thoughts Imperfect. Not quite sure I understand that. Uh, Redeemed Report says, Thoughts on Glenn Beck begging the Israeli government for dual citizenship. Why do you think these virtue signals are so prominent on the left and the right? I love Glenn. Super nice guy. I thought that was really strange. I don't really understand it. Um I, yeah, I don't same, really understand same. it. Same. I like I like Glenn a lot, and I've done his show a couple times, and he's been nothing but a cool guy to me. But uh, yeah, that was that was odd. Yeah, and I also want to say um, I don't hate Israeli people, and I'm not or anything like that. I would never try to blame a population for its government. I certainly wouldn't want that done to myself. So no ill will there. But yeah, I just think that that was a strange move. The Biblical Anarchy podcast says, historically, the British and the U.S. have undermined reformers, moderates, and secularists in the Arab-slash-Muslim world. Um, that is very true, unfortunately. Uh, Shieldwife says, Kennedy is brave enough to take on COVID hysteria. He's not brave enough to answer questions on the influence uh, on the influences that drive us slash Israel policy. Dave, you had a really viral clip uh, with RFK, I believe, about about that issue. Yeah, he was uh, he he had a long pause when I asked him that question. I probably I probably should have followed up uh, after he had that long pause and go. But doesn't that long pause just kind of prove my point? Because weren't you just thinking about all the different incentives and whatnot? And you're like, yeah. oh, what should I say here? The but, wheels um, are turning. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm I'm a. It's an understatement to say I'm disappointed in Bobby Kennedy's uh, take on uh, on the war in Gaza. And I don't I really don't see how anybody who's 
being honest and answering in good faith, if you asked about the level of Israeli influence within the domestic politics in the United States of America, wouldn't go, yeah, there is a wild, a wild amount of influence. And it's not just things like the Israeli lobby or things like, um, you know, the ADL or the Southern Poverty Law Center or something like that. It's like, hey, what was that whole Epstein thing about? No, Who absolutely. did he work for? What was the plan there? Why is Mossad having uh, these uh, rings collect dirt on our influential political figures? That's strange. And it, it bothers me because simultaneously we'll have people in the mainstream media try to assert that Russians buying Facebook posts is the right. biggest threat to our democracy and election integrity, while simultaneously, uh, you know, a lot of them are taking in a lot of these foreign monies in terms of in, investment or if not just like direct allegiance to, uh, I mean, I forget what what it was, but I think there's with Ghislaine Maxwell, like her, her father was involved in all of these different operations on behalf of Mossad. So it's a very, it's a very deep web. And if, if you don't, as an American kind of think, Hey, is this necessarily the best thing for American national interests? I don't think you know enough about it because it's definitely concerning to say the least, but let's talk a little bit about Russia. Uh, so Tucker Carlson, that little scamp, he's over there. He recently released his interview with Putin. It's over two hours. Have you had a chance to watch it in its entirety? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I watched all of it uh, as um, soon as it came out. So is is Tucker Carlson carrying weight for an anti-American dictator? Is he basically just complicit in, in spreading Russian propaganda? No, I mean, I, I think Tucker Carlson's an American hero. For, for going over and doing that. And I'm sorry, but like, this is what actual journalism is supposed to be. And if you want to talk about somebody, you know, being like a, um, a traitor or a failure or something like that, look, go look at the interviews that have been given to Zelensky from Western media, where they're just praising the guy. And there's a, uh, like, if you actually believe in journalism, there'd be a much larger onus on those guys to give a, a a difficult, critical interview of Zelensky because they're actually advocating that we fund his war. Tucker Carlson wasn't going over there advocating that the U.S. fund Russia's war in in Ukraine. No, I mean I thought I thought the interview was uh was fascinating. I think it was it's very important for Americans to hear Putin's side on this. And that's not to say that he's not. I mean, look, he's a head of state, so obviously he's engaging in propaganda. There, some of it was kind of laughable. Um, you know, the, the, give me 30 seconds to a minute to talk about the history. And then it's just a half hour. And, <laughs> you know, there were points of it where, uh, I, what, you know, he, he said at one point when he was talking about Stalin, he said, uh, like there were human rights abuses, <laughs> which was like, to put it mildly, like, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like, if you're like, uh, Michael Jordan, he made a few shots in the nineties, <laughs> you know, he had a couple of dunks here and right. there. You're like, yeah, okay. Uh, but and of course, he left out all of the his, all of the history that makes Russia look bad. And there's a lot of it. And part of the reason why the Ukrainians have been so sympathetic toward the Nazis is because whatever the Nazis did to the Ukrainians pales in comparison to what the Soviets did to the Ukrainians. And the reason why there's such a large percentage of ethnic Russians there is because the Soviets flooded them with ethnic Russians. So there was a lot of bullshit. But from 1991 to 2022, he made a lot of really fair points. And, you know, that's how government propaganda typically works. You jump on the fair points and then try to squeeze in all your other stuff around it. Um, but I think that, look, I've, I've been following for quite a while 
what Putin's been saying about the war in Ukraine since it started, before it started, and for years before it started. And the fact is that what he's been saying over and over again is like, I have real security concerns here. And I think if we're being honest, the forget like, you know, how things would work in a perfect world if we're dealing in the world that we actually live in, like, is Mexico really free to join a military alliance with Russia? I mean, we well, saw what happened when Cuba tried it. Yeah, like that's we right. don't need to speak in hypotheticals. Yes, that's exactly and, right. And Jack Kennedy said they're still okay. embargoed. Yes, well, Jack Kennedy said when the missiles were put in Cuba, he said, "I will blow up the world. <laughs> Get these missiles out of Cuba, or we're blowing up every human being on the uh, on the planet." And then they got on the phone and they made a deal. And they took the missiles out, you know, and right. we pulled some missiles out of uh, Turkey or wherever it was at the time. Um, and that's all. That's that's clearly what could have happened here. And if you listen, even like the, the highest level people in NATO, they've been bragging for years that Vladimir Putin demands Ukraine not enter NATO. And we will not do that. We will not close the door on that. But that is a totally reasonable request. It's totally reasonable to say you can't have your military alliance right on the my, my border with our largest trading partner that borders us. And, and you know, with my where which at the time the territory included his only year long warm water port. Uh, this is just not that. And and it was only because the uh, uh, Americans and the, the Western Europeans insisted on poking him over and over and over again that he ultimately invaded and that i don't think that was right and i think the war has been horrible but you know there were there were so many off ramps there, there was just really no reason since the fall of the soviet union for russia to even be an enemy and the the same neoconservatives who wanted to fight all of these wars in the Middle East and want to do everything they can to support Israel every step of the way. This was also their plan. And you can read about it in the Project for a New American Century, that this was their plan to expand NATO as far east as we could possibly get it. And why? Because as Charles Krauthammer said, it was the unipolar moment. We won. And so why? Winners don't have to be nice to everybody. Winners get to rule the world. And that was the path we went down. And look, look how great it's worked out for our country. Mm -hmm. um, so real quick, I just want to address this point. Ah, yes, the classic, I stand on moral high ground because I don't pick sides narrative. Doesn't surprise me coming from these two. I don't know how you can listen to what we have been saying and assume that is our position. And just so we're super crystal clear, uh, I am picking sides. I pick the sides of the American taxpayer and the sides of civilians who are, are under military occupation and being bombed. Those are my those are my sides. Yeah, no, um, I'm picking. I'm very clearly picking sides. I'm yeah. on America's side. America's side. Have you looked around? the country we're not doing very good we're 34 trillion dollars in debt we're hated by the world we're about to lose the dollar as the reserve uh, uh standard and that is going to result in hyperinflation in this country so uh, that's what I'm, I'm i'm on the side of the american people period that's all i care about i got little kids and they got to grow up in this country that's the side i'm on is them growing up in a good country and i'm against washington dc because they are ruining our country couldn't have said it better myself and what i mean th this factors into what's happening in, in ukraine as well 
I, I grew up overseas. Uh, I grew up in Hong Kong, Singapore, and the UK. And what I think a lot of Americans don't understand is the animosity that a lot of these countries have. Now, I'm also of the belief that just because another country doesn't like it doesn't mean we should stop doing it when it comes to like First Amendment, Second Amendment. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there is, again, that that ability for some people to imagine themselves in someone else's position when it comes to American foreign involvement. And there are a million and one reasons to love America, and I do, but absolutely none of them are the government. And it just frustrates me that these conservatives who are so quick to criticize and demonize the American government when it comes to domestic issues, suddenly when we're talking about foreign policy, believe that these same people a lot of the times who are in Congress or the president all of a sudden become moral or competent actors just because they're dealing in the international the international sphere. It doesn't work like that. Um but yeah, regarding NATO, what would you say to the idea that, well, NATO is just a, you know, a self-defense alliance? It's not it's not necessarily aggressive. And these Eastern European countries like Ukraine, you know, all of these, they should have the ability to choose their own alliances. Don't don't you believe in a country's right to self-determination? Um, OK, so. Uh, I mean, how would like that person who who would say that, because I know you're kind of playing devil's advocate, but so it, what if I were to say to you that the Russian military is just a defensive military? You would probably point out the fact that they just invaded Ukraine, right? right? And you'd go, no, that proves that they're not defensive. They can be aggressive. Well, okay, same with NATO. I mean, you can sit here and say it's a defensive alliance, except for all the times it's not. It didn't fight a defensive war in Serbia. It didn't fight a defensive war in Libya. It didn't fight a defensive war in Afghanistan. So, yeah, that can be your perspective. But, of course, from Vladimir Putin's perspective, this isn't a defensive alliance at all. This is the American empire, their European military alliance. And this is a country that has started seven wars in the last uh, 20 years that where hundreds of thousands of millions of people have died. And this is a country that framed you for overthrowing their democracy. And now they're moving closer and closer to your border. And they're putting, you know, these ACES dual use rocket launchers all the way up to Poland. Now, now they're talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO and what, what's to stop them from putting those dual use rocket launchers in, in Ukraine. So from his perspective, obviously he can't look at it like that. And as far as saying like, you know, okay, well, don't, shouldn't these sovereign countries have a right to join whatever alliance they want to? Well, again, I would say, does Mexico or Canada really have the right to join a, a military alliance with China or Russia? I mean, no, we all know they don't. But even if you think they, they should, okay, but we have a right to not join an alliance with them. Like NATO, you need, uh, it has to be unanimous to admit new members to NATO. So America itself can shut down any uh, anyone who wants to join NATO. And so my question isn't like, should Estonia want to join NATO? I mean, yeah, you know, from their perspective, sure. Why wouldn't you want to have the biggest, most powerful bully on the block guarantee your safety? But the question is, is that in America's interest? Is it in America's interest to make war guarantees with countries halfway across the world? 5,000 miles from our borders. And all you just ask yourself, like, honestly, are you, I'm not saying Russia should invade Estonia. I hope they don't. I don't think they will. But are you willing to send your kids to go die if Russia invades Estonia? Because my answer to that is very simple and it's not hard to think about. Like, no, 
I'm not. I will not. And so, like, that's really the question. The question is, why would we be provoking the country with the largest nuclear arsenal in the history of the world? Why? How is that in America's benefit? How is that in anyone's benefit? How has it been? Look, in, in 2014, after the Maidan Revolution, when all of the idiot neocons like Victoria Newland were celebrating how wonderful this is, that democracy had won in Ukraine. You know, when you overthrow a democratically elected government, that's democracy. Um, all the neocons were celebrating what a victory it was. Gideon Rose was spiking the football on the Colbert show and all this stuff. And John Mearsheimer said that we are leading Ukraine down the primrose path. Now, we're leading them to their own demise. Who was right? Who was right about that? All this talk of bringing Ukraine into NATO, all this involvement in, in Ukraine and sending weapons in, I'm talking all before the war in 22. All this stuff, this didn't help Ukraine any. This, this has done nothing but just, it's it's nothing but catastrophic. Well, I mean, we have this question, chaotic antifreeze. What if America just went full isol isolationist, completely getting out of all wars and trade instead of what's happening now? I, I don't like the idea that wars and trade have to be together, where you if you don't want the war, then you can't have the trade either. And looking at the chat, I mean, there there's definitely a lot of people who still see Russia as inherently an anti-American force. And Ben Shapiro, I don't know if you've kind of been following what he's been saying about not just Russia as a whole, you know, obviously he's, he's a war hawk, he says it himself, but also the, the interview with Tucker, um, he does view Vladimir Putin as inherently anti-American, which I thought was interesting because a lot of people, I myself included, think that he could have gone way harder on Biden, on American domestic policies, but he didn't. He even kind of expressed his willingness for negotiations. I get called an isolationist all the time. That's not how I view myself. I am pro-diplomacy and negotiation. I don't understand why the people who are apparently like not isolationists, why they're the ones a lot of time who don't seem open to that dialogue or conversation. It's pretty it's pretty funny if you think about it that like the people who want to go around like bombing third world countries call us isolationists, which you're like, <laughs> that seems like a that seems like you're kind of going to isolate That's yourself there. Anti-social behavior. Like, <laughs> like, like, I mean, obviously, we've been talking all about foreign policy and not economics, but just I'll just say this. If you if you're talking about cutting off trade with the rest of the world, I, I would just say that if you think about, let's say, the last three years and how much price inflation has hurt working class and middle class families, you're, you would be looking at an increase in the cost of everything that would dwarf what we've seen in the last three years. If you're talking about not trading with any foreign countries, you're going to be looking at price inflation in the hundreds of percent because it would just be so much more expensive um, to make all of the things that we we trade for with other countries here. So I would just say consider that possibility that like if you think you know, prices rising by nine to 15% or whatever the real price inflation numbers are. If you think that's devastating, okay, but cut off trade to the whole rest of the world and you, that's going to be nothing. But yeah, I mean, we certainly could close our borders and stop fighting wars around the rest of the world. That wouldn't hurt us one bit. Um, so I, you know, as far as Ben Shapiro's take on, on all of this is just Look, again, it, it's the same thing like we we're saying with the Muslim world. Like, all you really got to do here is just put the shoe on the other foot and go, how would we feel if this was being done to us? Would it be a provocation then? Because, yeah, of course it would be. And you're right. In the Putin interview, he didn't go too hard 
on on America. In fact, he kind of there was it was there are a few really interesting points. Like it was really interesting when he talked about how he confronted uh, George W. Bush on the fact that they were uh, funding the jihadists in Chechnya and that George W. Bush was like, what? Well, I'm going to kick their ass for doing that. And then basically just nothing happened and they just kept doing it. And this is like post 9-11 funding the bin Ladenites. It's pretty wild that, you know, the, and again, I'm not taking Putin at his word, but we were funding the bin Ladenites in Chechnya. Right. So he's not wrong about that. I don't know exactly how the conversation with George W. Bush went, but no, I mean, if anything, Putin kind of reiterated what was true that he wanted to join NATO and was basically told that wouldn't work. And he said that he's open to negotiate. He, he offered like an off ramp to all of this. And ben he Shapiro also says out, he didn't. Ben Shapiro says he offered no yeah, off ramp. There's no way for this war to end. Just need to keep funneling weapons to Ukraine. Yeah, which is all like nonsense. And it's true as, as we know now that like he wasn't lying when he said that they basically had a deal worked out and that then it was Boris Yeltsin or excuse me, Boris Johnson, sorry, Russia on the brain, <laughs> Boris yeah. Johnson, who came over on behalf of, you know, DC and told him, no, do not negotiate an end to this. We will fund you to eternity if you fight them. And so, sorry, but I mean, Vladimir Putin's got a lot of blood on his hands for doing the invasion. But when you discourage negotiations and say, if you fight, we will fund you forever, you got a lot of blood on your hands too. All right. Well, we have I'll Fight You Naked. Scott Adams suggested we didn't make peace after the collapse because all Intel people were experts on fighting Russia and didn't know what else to do. Um, you know, the Boris Johnson thing, that again, it's interesting because Russia, I mean, sorry, Putin, he didn't actually, I think, reveal any new information in that interview. Like you said, you've been following what he's been yeah. saying about this whole situation since before the war. I have as well. The message has always been pretty clear. NATO eastward expansion is a problem. The ethnically Russian oblasts, uh, you know, in eastern Ukraine, that's a concern. And uh, what else? Oh, yeah, just the general interference, things like the Maidan revolution. He he smells the CIA all over Eastern Europe. He doesn't like that. Do you think that the fact that we are still in some places carrying water for this is about democracy, this is good versus evil, do you think that people are tired of that? Do they still believe it? There was this uh, clip from Julian Assange that was going viral. I think it's, it's very relevant to this whole interview. He was basically speaking about how information asymmetry is usually the only way that the American public or the public in general will be in support of a war. Um, yeah. You know, we, we saw that in Iraq. Uh, I think we're we're largely seeing this now in Ukraine. Are 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 the American people getting tired of it? Do they see through it? Is this why the mainstream media was so hostile to this interview happening between Tucker Carlson and Putin? Oh, it's not yeah, necessarily I mean, new information, but it's probably the biggest platform this information could possibly get. Right. It's not new information, but it's new information for millions of people right. and new information, particularly coming from the most influential right winger in news, you know, who left, got fired from his number one cable news show and is now many times bigger than he was on the network, which represents a crazy sea change in the monopoly of information. And, you know, I think that a, a lot of it is just that they've lied so much about so many things and been proven wrong and not just with all the wars i mean as, as you know i think you're a little bit younger than me but 
Like, if you remember in the war in Iraq, it was crazy the amount of lies that they just like, it was like, this guy's got weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. and he was in on 9-11 and it's a slam dunk that he, that that's the case. And we're going to be greeted as liberators and the war is going to be paid for in oil and like all that, none of that came true. It was all lies. And they just got exposed one after another after another. And look, I think that the corporate media has been all in on the war in Ukraine from the very beginning. And just think about the number of lies that they've sold this war off of. I mean, everything from the history of the conflict to what Vladimir Putin's beef really was to why he invaded. They said there was going to be a false flag attack, and then he was invaded. The false flag attack never happened. They said we would fight it with sanctions, and the sanctions would cripple the Russian economy. There's the ghost of Kiev, and Ukraine is winning all throughout this thing. They kept lying, saying Ukraine is winning. And... And I think that when you've lied about everything, it's kind of scary that people might get to hear the other side and you might get called on a lot of those lies. So I think that explains the collective freak out over it. And, you know, as far as the uh, the comment about like uh, Scott Adams saying that like people were just kind of experts in uh, um, being anti-Russia, I think there's, there's something to that. Um, but I also just think that, look, it's like everything else, man. It's like every other government program. Like, if a government program is put in place to solve a problem and the problem goes away, all of these, it's just like basic public choice theory that like, there's just no incentive for those people to say, yeah, we recognize that this problem's gone away and now we can all get real jobs. And so instead, you know, like if you have an entire industry that is fighting racism, it doesn't help them at all to go, ah, we're just not that racist of a country anymore. I guess we right. shouldn't have this job. And so I think there's a lot of that. And look, you could see the, the Soviet Union, the, the Berlin Wall comes down in 89. We no longer have this, this Cold War threat. And then we invade Iraq a couple years later, right? <laughs> Intelligence to, community just twiddling their thumbs, don't know so what to well, do with themselves. Better well, start how are we going to? Because you got to, because otherwise, like, people are going to demand cuts in the military budget. If the Cold War is just over and we don't have this threat that we use to justify these bloated uh, military budgets, then we're going to. But now you guys see Saddam Hussein is in a slant drilling feud with Kuwait. Oh, we got to go. We have to fight that war. I mean, come on. That's like the next Adolf Hitler right there. And it's just uh, war after war after war since then. Right. Uh, topically, Andrew asked, do you think this will lead? And I think this was back from our Israel conversation to a larger regional conflict involving Iran and or other nations. I mean, I think we've already seen spillover when it comes to places like Lebanon. So I think it's it's already starting. I don't know about. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's already led to a larger regional conflict. We had bombing campaigns of the Houthis in Yemen, bombing campaigns in, in Iraq and Syria. The question is, will it lead to a war with Iran? I mean, I really hope not. But that sure is a risk. And uh, it's a risk. That, and, and just so, like people understand, I had one uh, one uh, Green Beret buddy of mine told me once, he was like, uh, he goes, just so you know, a war with Iran would not be 10 times more uh, costly than the war in Iraq. It would be 100 times. Like you're, you're talking about something, if we were talking about a real war with Iran, you're talking about something many times worse than what the war in Iraq would be for lots of logistical reasons and uh, they like they can target our our bases much more easily it's a much more difficult terrain to invade i mean it's almost off the table like the military straight up told george w bush they wouldn't do it mm -hmm. they were like we cannot take all of these losses and yeah we're flirting with that possibility and did you see janet how is that in uh, our interest 
Did you see Yellen saying like, actually, we can afford a, a, a three front war. We could totally do it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a plan. Yeah, no, feels feels good. Uh, Redeemed reports. I want to know your guys' thoughts on 9-11. Well, not a fan. I don't know about you, Dave. Not a fan of 9-11. I was against it. If yeah. I was there, I'd have told them to stop for sure. Courageous um, stance. I was I was there actually. I mean, I wasn't I was a couple miles away from yeah, 9-11 when it happened. Are you I mean, are, is the question like, am I a truther or something like that? Then I don't no. know. Well, What's what I thought was interesting is that you kind of mentioned earlier the whole Osama bin Laden letters to America that was going viral a little bit. And, uh, you know, poli sci degree, I had to read it as one of the classes. I was shocked at how few people had apparently never heard of it, let alone read it. And I know there were a lot of people who were really shaming the Gen Z people saying like, wow, I had no idea. I, I mean, I there are people in Gen Z saying like, oh, he was right. Like, oh, let's not yeah. go so that far. But just, you know a theme throughout all of this when it comes to these foreign conflicts is the information asymmetry, lack of information. There were a lot of people who did believe that Osama bin Laden just hated America for freedom. Just, you know, inherently I hate you. And I think it was a good thing for them to actually, even if you don't take him at face value, which I don't think you should at least understanding the mindset that led to it, I don't think was a bad thing. So there are a lot of people who are like, Oh, stop reading this. Stop sharing. This is bad. No, I want, if someone, bombs me if someone actually attacks me i want to know from their mouth why exactly they did it i think that's a good thing i think it's hard to argue against that and uh, we also saw there was this uh houthi pirate uh they were calling him tim houthi chalamet because he's he's a good looking guy he's young he's on social media um he was interviewed by hassan piker and a lot of people thought hassan shouldn't do it uh, it was a very like Obviously, Hassan basically came out and said, I support you guys. I don't think it's inherently, again, a bad thing to speak to the other side. I hate the idea that any information I get about these conflicts has to go through either the government or the corporate press. I can't imagine anything worse. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. I didn't see the Hassan Piker interview, although as soon as you say it, I'm like, oh, did it have to be that guy who yeah, was right. doing the interview, you know? And like, yeah, some of those like 16-year-old TikTokers or whatever were saying, yeah, Osama bin Laden's a great guy. And okay, again, that's stupid. But I mean, look, the whether or not you even believe that Osama bin Laden's stated grievances were really his grievances, they were certainly his recruiting shtick. They were certainly how he got other people to go blow themselves up to kill people. And really, it, it, it's just not that crazy that, look, I mean, the the hijackers were all Saudis and Egyptians. And both of those countries are countries where we prop up brutal dictators. Right. And they don't much like that. They don't much like that we have military bases in their holy land in the Arabian Peninsula. And they don't like that we prop up Israel and its treatment of the Palestinians. And they didn't like that we had been on, at the time, like a 10-year bombing campaign against Iraq and slaughtered countless children and starved a whole bunch of them with the blockade that Bill Clinton had around that country. Then I don't get why, why is it so unreasonable to think that that would motivate this when they're telling you that's what motivated this. And then also to realize that, look, after 9-11, what was our immediate response? It's like, well, we're going to go get these guys. And if some innocent people got to die in the in the process, well, that's that's just that. Like immediately, America wrote George W. Bush a blank check to go invade and bomb whoever he wanted to because we were hit and innocent people died. So we got to go do something about this. 
if that's how we felt, why is it so crazy that they would feel the same way? Mm. Um, I hate to break it to you, but Lauren and Dave are lefties at heart, says. Uh, oh, there you Dan, go. So here's the thing. I don't know what about what you're saying uh, is coming across as left wing. And I think that for a lot of the neocons, and I want to be clear, I'm talking about neocons when I say, oh, they're right. Like it's neoconservatives specifically, George Bush and uh not being part of that tribe does not make me a leftist. Uh, and, but, I, and do you I, even know anything about the history of them? They were all a bunch of Trotskyites. Look, right. Sebastian, let me make this very clear to you how much I'm not a lefty and how much I do not believe in egalitarianism and support hierarchy. I think I'm better than you. And I think all of my arguments are at least arguments and you're just calling me a lefty. I think that's stupid. So I think I rank above you because I'm such a right winger. <laughs> all right. Does that help? But, I mean, if you look at people like Ron Paul, like Rand Paul, I mean, it's people who are actually like consistently right wing. It's very hard to say like, oh, well, to be right wing, you must be in favor of these military actions. I, that's something that I, I in, in American contemporary politics, absolutely. That has come out to be the case because of the neoconservative influence. But there's nothing inherently right wing about being, yes, let's arm Ukraine. So, no, yeah. I, I reject really? that entirely. I am not less of a right winger than you just because I do not support all of these. Yeah, uh, I'm, taking, I'm taking Pat Buchanan's position on these wars. So, like, if you think if you think somehow you think George W. Bush is more of a right winger than Pat Buchanan, then I don't know. You got to read more. Right. Or what's what's really interesting is that this like this is the establishment position of not just the the Republicans in Congress, but also the lefties too. The Biden administration, they are in, in support of all of these actions. They are standing by uh Israel, military operations in Gaza, they are standing by Ukraine. So to say, oh, I don't support that, therefore I'm a lefty, the lefties are on board. Or at least the establishment ones are. Uh, yeah. It's it's the uniparty that's in favor of this. This is not a right or left issue, which is kind of interesting, actually. Um, the Biblical Anarchy podcast says, Dave made this point at a Mises Caucus event last year. Conservatives lost the culture war because they bet all their credibility on killing a million Arabs over the past 20 years. And it seems they haven't learned their lesson. So this is, this is something that I... I made me laugh, but in a like, oh, well, of course we're losing kind of way. With the whole gender issue, the transness, there was actually a lot of inroads being made between Muslims and the conservative community, because I think there's a natural alliance there. Like, hey, don't trans our kids. Don't trans our kids. Very cool. We can be friends about it. All of that disappeared in an instant, I think, um, when the topic of the Middle East and Israel came back up again, which was sad to see. I think we've already seen that Gen Z young voters, they see Biden's handling of Israel as a reason to not vote for him, which is great. But because of how a lot of the establishment right and neocons have reacted themselves, that doesn't mean they're going to vote Republican. That definitely yeah. means they're not going to vote Republican. Well, I do. I think there was a, you know, it was, there was a, a John Adams quote. Um, which I always butcher, but uh, it was something like if uh, if America goes around the world looking for monsters to destroy, uh, she will become the dictress of the world, but she will lose the power to control her own soul. And I just think it's like so crazy to me that something so prophetic would be said so many years before it happened. And I think if conservatives do care about, you know, the our culture, which they kind of ought to, and I think, you know, there's a lot of really big problems right now. And it's not just that it's not just the trans stuff. I mean, it's like so much more than that. It's, it's, it's wild to me. Like I'm 40 and then it's what 40, you know, sounds old when you're young, but it doesn't feel that old once you get there. 
And it's so crazy to me, just like what a different world it is today to be like a high school kid than it was for me just right. being in high school. Just like the, the, the culture of like, uh, like only fans and girls just like taking pictures and thongs on Instagram and stuff is like totally normal. Now that would have been like, even for like the really slutty girls when I was in high school, like none of them would have done that. There's just, and like, you've watched the, how much like, um, cu cultural decay there's been in the last couple decades. And I just don't think that that's unrelated to the fact that the conservatives and through the neoconservative, like establishment conservatives, they were laser focused on killing as many Muslims as they could. That was all they really cared about. They'll lose whatever cultural battle as long as they could get their next war. Then look back in our history. I mean, when, when was the cultural revolution? It was when we were fighting in Vietnam. And there's something about this where like when you, when you, when it becomes so obvious that your nation is not the good guys, and it's like, look at what a horrible thing we're doing, then you kind of lose this ability to have any real moral weight behind what you're saying. You can't really direct culture anymore. And like, I, I'm sure you've seen this because I think, I really like, I think you, you kind of came up in this, this wave where like around say say 2015 2016 you had this like kind of crazy fracturing where the left wing was going way further left and the right wing was going way further right and why is that why is that allowed to happen well it's because the center is failing so much and when the center fails you know like you know no matter how crazy a left wokeist the uh, woke person was or like no matter how crazy like an alt right person might be what was like John McCain going to look at Richard Spencer and say, that's too far, young man? Like, what? Well, through you, who are you a, to say anything? That's a great point. And I actually got, I got the call um, <laughs> after I, I think uh, Israel first started dropping bombs on Gaza. Basically, Lindsey Graham, he had come out and essentially declared a holy war because he's Lindsey Graham. Um, and I, I shared a Nick Fuentes clip. Base, and, and I did say, like, he's making more sense than anyone else. Not that I love Nick Fuentes, but in that clip, he very specifically says, it's not right what they're doing. We should be hoping for peace. Collective punishment is wrong. Getting the U.S. into this is not what we want. The majority of children in Gaza, it's not all right to bomb it. That was his take. My opinion was, look at, look at what the most banned person on the planet is saying. And yet Lindsey Graham, the actual people in Congress have a way more radical view. So if Nick Fuentes can look at the situation and think, guys, this is not morally in the up and up yeah. and Lindsey Graham can't, what does that mean for you? Like, what does that mean for actual sitting politicians that, that, that you, you're not, you're not seeing the human element. And I don't think anyone would accuse Nick Fuentes of being a fan of the Muslims. <laughs> Even right. he is saying, maybe we lay off of this. Uh, and it, it's just, and it's crazy how probably one of the most insane political and radical positions you could have in politics is to advocate for large scale war and all of these bombs being dropped. But somehow that's been considered mainstream. Well, like I, I'm called a radical all the time. I would never suggest, you know, actions that would result in the deaths of tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I mean, I the way I used to always say it, um, and I, I said this on uh, Rogan's podcast once, but like, I was like, if you just took the most, like, like, let's just say hypothetically, we were living in a normal society, like whatever you think a normal society is, you know, it's just like, whatever, it's a good functioning society. And we have, you know, peace and prosperity. And then there was like, like a, a left wing radical came to you 
and said, you know, whatever they would say, you know, we should start transing the kids and have open borders or whatever. And then like a right wing radical came to you and was like, we should deport all, you know, illegal immigrant immigrants or whatever, you know, like whatever a right way. And then a third person came to you and said, you know, I think we should invade seven countries in 20 years and slaughter <laughs> millions of people. I think we should spend ourselves $34 trillion into debt. I think, you know what I mean? Like it, you, it'd be hard to say, who's the radical there right. like who's really take and yeah it's you leave you leave the door open for somebody to to just take the reasonable position on that issue and then maybe they have a lot of other positions that like you know i wouldn't agree with but i i do think it's it, it's hard whatever criticism you might have of nick fuentes i mean there's nothing i've ever heard the kids say that's crazier than what I've heard Lindsey Graham say. Exactly. Exactly. Um, again, that's not that's not to say it's it's a good thing what he's saying, but I think we need to all put in, in into context how out there, how insane it is, the rhetoric that is coming from actually sitting, serving members of Congress when they're I mean, basically, yeah, he essentially declared a holy war. Uh love that guy, Lindsey Graham. Um, Dave, this has been so, so much fun. Uh, where can people find more of you? Where can they follow you? Uh, listen to your podcast, chat it all out. Oh, uh, yeah, part of the problem is my podcast, and it's it's available wherever you get uh your podcast. And then on on Twitter, I'm at comic Dave Smith, and uh comicdavesmith.com is my website. Awesome. And just before we go real quick, uh, one question, Dave, did you catch the Tom Woods podcast yesterday with Colonel Douglas McGregor? No, but I love both Tom Woods and Colonel Douglas McGregor. I will definitely listen to that. I have not listened to it yet. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Dave as well as like, share and subscribe, and we will see you next time. Take care.